All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Delivered by DoorDash. Welcome to episode 48 of the DFO Rundown at dailyfaceoff.com. I'm Jason Greger along with Frank Saravalli coming to you once again live from the woodjerseys.com studio. And if you missed their video of the new Kraken jersey, it was awesome. It looks fantastic. You can get all of them. the new ones at the NHL, of course, Frank has the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs. I've got the Boston Bruins. They have lots of other team and Kraken fans. You can get yours at woodjerseys.com. It'll look awesome in your fan cave, in your office, or wherever you like. Uh, Frank, how are you doing? Are you rested? Are you, Have your fingers healed up, Frank, because uh, you were a tweeting machine uh, earlier this week. Yeah, uh, feeling good. It was a good week for Daily Faceoff. Yeah, it was, uh, it was awesome. Um, we're, we're surprised when, when the draft unfolded, when you look at all the talent that was available to Seattle, and I understand the theory that, that, uh, that cap space is important, but so is talent. And they, they really seem to, to value cap space more than talent at this point. Well, I understand why. And the reason for that is, everyone seems kind of flush right now. Everyone's got a little flexibility and that's not to say some teams aren't in cap trouble, but 
they're going to be spending again. RFAs need deals. Guys are going to need new deals a year from now. And the thing is, Seattle, I think, has recognized that the crunch isn't coming this year. The cr- because And the reason for that is Seattle has injected $81.5 million new dollars into, into the total system. And so when you think about it, you know, Seattle by its nature was a, an escape valve, a release valve for a lot of teams. I mean, look at the Tampa Bay Lightning. For the first time in a long time, they're under the cap. And I think the big thing moving forward is they know that the real crunch is coming next summer. It's next summer when the cap is flat again at 81.5, or maybe we get a bump to 82.5 if revenues really come back, that that's when Seattle is really going to be able to take advantage and harvest a lot of talent, not just in trades, but also on the free agent market because teams are going to have to let guys walk. And so I think that's the play for Seattle, that it's uh, a multi-year play. And I think if we're all being honest, everyone wants to compare the Kraken to the Vegas Golden Knights and, and look at what they drafted on night one and look at who's going to be their Jonathan Marcia. So who's going to be their Riley Smith? Who's going to be so-and-so? Who's going to be their Shea Theodore? I got to tell you, it's revisionist history. Go back and watch and read the reviews from the Vegas Golden Knights opening night of their draft. I was in Vegas. I was there. And we all walked out of that arena looking at each other saying Vegas just drafted a pile of shit. I'm telling you that's the reaction that a lot of people had in the hockey world then. And they got, they were better than they ever realized. They were heading into the season thinking, here's the five guys we're going to trade before the deadline. If we can flip them. And they got to December and they said, Holy crap, we're actually good. And it, it was a surprise to them. And I'm not saying the Kraken can't do that. They've got some work to do. I think they have a few foundational pieces that make sense. Um, and, and they do have some talent. But I do think that there were some spots where the Kraken overthought it. And I think there were some spots where the Kraken underthought it. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I would agree with you. Comparing to Vegas is not good because if you actually go back and look at Vegas's season, five of their top six scores had career highs Never before, never again. Eric Holla, 29 goals and 55 points. Marsha So had 75 points. William Carlson, Carlson had 43 goals, insane. for goodness sakes. Riley Smith had a career high of 60. Perron, 66. And then, Frank, probably the craziest part of that Vegas inaugural season was Marc-Andre Fleury got injured. Marc-Andre Fleury played 46 games. They had three goaltenders with a combined two NHL games experience. Malcolm and they didn't lose, fans. seemingly. Legacy, and then Oscar Dansk. They won 22 of the 36 games they started. They went 22-11-3. and It was mind-blowing. Those guys aren't even with the team anymore. No, I know. That's my point. Like, these guys, it's not like they were rookies who then went on to be great goaltenders. They were rookies where Subban's the only one. He's a backup now, and the other two guys aren't even in the league. And so Seattle, I think, is wise to to not swing for the fences. I think it's a little bit unrealistic. I think also when you look at their draft, they've got eight left defensemen. They're obviously going to be trading a few of those guys because uh, defensemen, we know we're at a premium at some point. I expected them to take a lot of NHL defensemen. Uh, I just, there was a few trade, a uh, few choices that I was a little perplexed by and I thought, okay, maybe there's a trade coming. Well, there is no trade coming. So now we'll see what they do in the, in the next few months, but I get the sense 
that Seattle's actually going to be very patient in their organization. Well, you know, there was lots of talk from ownership that, yeah, we really want to compete. They'll be competitive in the sense that I don't think they're going to be the Atlanta thrashers by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination. And I saw the Atlanta thrashers uh, old Twitter account saying Yannick Trombley was the best player we were able to draft uh, back Which then. Which said a lot. Yeah, that's true. Right. And, and I, I, I think, um, I think this team as currently constituted, and I think it'll look a lot different over the next 10 or 15 days. I think they're a borderline playoff team. I kind of see them like fifth, sixth, seventh in the division. Uh, I don't think they're going to be the worst team in the Pacific. And I'll give you two examples just to follow up on what I was saying about underthinking it and overthinking it. The one that I, you know, I look at and I say, you know, they kind of overthought was the, the selection from the Flyers. Now you had James Van Riemsdyk, yes. you had Jake Voracek, and you had Shane Gostisbehere on the board. Now I understand going back to the cap space theme that you want to preserve that space, but and I also understand the roster requirements and what they needed to select. But Carson Torinsky is a borderline NHL player. Not saying he's not going to be. But Robert Hag is a full-blown NHL defenseman that can play on any team's third pair, and it's cheap. So to think that you didn't take Hag, who is is a bona fide player and is is still relatively young, and has something to offer, I, I just think that's a miss. You know, to yeah. say nothing of the other guys that you have, and then to in, in a spot where I think they underthought it was the fact that they didn't do exactly what we were projecting that they should do with the Tampa Bay lightning plucking Yanni Gord, who I have no problem with. He's still the player aside from Jamie Alexiak, who they freshly signed that has the longest term of any player picked with four years left. You had to squeeze Tampa there because you gave them a get out of jail free card. They were over the cap and and really had no way to get under aside from the fact that, you know, Seattle taking one of these high priced players off their hand in a Gord or a Palat or Johnson or whoever in that $5 million range. And so the fact that they didn't say we're taking Matthew Joseph, who I think actually can outscore Yanni Gord this season on a cheap cap hit and then make them throw in a player. Maybe they had the conversation and maybe it's possible that Julian Breesbaugh just said, go ahead and take Joseph and Seattle chickened out. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case but I would have still taken Joseph anyway, because I think he can be better than Yanni Gord is. Hmm. Yeah. I like Yanni Gord a lot. Uh, I, I think Ron Francis really values the center position and the fact that Yanni Gord can, you know, he can play defensive zone starts, you know, he's kind of can be on an energy line. He can chip in offensively if you like, and likes his versatility and maybe his character. He's feisty as well. But yeah, Joseph is a young player that I'm very curious to see. 24 years old plays at. center. And I'll bet you right now, Jason, he scored 12 in 56 games without a wink of power play time. I'm going to wager right now a steak dinner next time I'm in Edmonton that Matthew Joseph scores 25 goals this year. 25? Okay, we're on. 25 Genos. All right, I'm on for that. Perfect. Mm-hmm. I love it. I got some good restaurants to take you to, Frank, so that'll be great. Now, Hey, I'll be in. Hey, I'm coming in in August. I'm coming oh, in. Oh, I know. You're coming for the, uh, for the, Oilers tournament, Nation for the golf, golf tournament. Yeah. How's your golf game? It's actually really struggled. Um, I played. I like how you say that. Like you're surprised. Like, are you a really good golfer or something? No, I'm actually <laughs> somewhat consistent. Um, okay. And 
I just haven't had the headspace for it. There's been so much going on between covering the league and daily faceoff. Uh, I went and I tried to play like 10 days ago with my buddies and I'm usually kind of like mid to high eighties, maybe low nineties. I, in a span of six shots, I hit five out of bounds. And I was like, it's just, this just, we actually were playing a match in a tournament at our club and I, we lost in the 12th hole. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Right. Yeah, totally of course, today is uh, episode 48 and it's uh, entry draft day, uh, a big day for lots of kids, uh, young players and their families as uh, they will be drafted to the National Hockey League. Uh, it seems like Owen Power will be number one. Brad Allen from Hockey Prospect will join us today on the show to break down the draft. And really, you know, if people are listening today. You're going to be able to go back on the weekend and listen to what Brad has to say about the players that your team drafted. And that's kind of what our strategy is going to be today. We're not going to project who's going to go where. We're more so going to be like get an analysis on the top players. Lots of guys at different places in the first round. You know, there's two goaltenders that teams are very high on. And you look at the importance of goaltenders. So we'll get into that. Brad, of course, is the international scout. He's also a goalie scout. So it'll be fun to talk to him. And usually, Frank, there's lots of trades, but Ken Holland today was interesting. He felt that he thinks it might be a little bit quieter the trade front just because there's been so much talk lately that he thinks it might not happen till later. What, what's your sense? Because often we do see a few players either leading up, and there was, of course, the uh, the trade uh, yesterday between Detroit but and, and even Goss Bear going to Arizona. But do you get a sense that any of those big names that are on the market are going to move today or tomorrow? I, I don't get a sense with guys like Seth Jones or Tarasenko, for instance. I really wonder about Eichel, and I can tell you that everyone's high on high alert. And the reason for that is this. I, I wrote in my icebreaker story today on dailyfaceoff.com that the New York Rangers, I, I think, you know, if I were to handicap the race at this point, I think the New York Rangers are the team that's the odds-on favorite to, to land Jack Eichel. And I know that they had been asking around to other teams, hey, can we get inside the top 10? What What is it going to cost for your pick? And it's okay. interesting because the Rangers are picking at 16 and you're saying, okay, not all that unusual for a team to want to get into the top 10, especially with, as we'll talk about, the players being so closely grouped inside these top te- this top 10. But what's interesting is the Sabres are asking for another lottery-type pick. And I think if you see that go down on Friday, it's probably a pretty good indication that something is up. Um, right. and, and so the Rangers were asking around about that, and I think that's the exact motivation was they're trying to get Jack Eichel. They want that extra pick. Buffalo has made it clear – that they want another high end first round. They don't want, you know, 27th overall. They want like something inside the top 10 that they can add to that number one pick that they have. And so uh, in addition to the bevy of young picks or young players, picks and prospects um, that they're looking to get back. So to talk about some of the other teams that are in the mix, I think uh, the Anaheim ducks are very, very interested I think there was a time period where they were like, ah, you know what? The price is too high. And I think they've circled back and have now gotten back in it. Um, I, I still wonder about the Los Angeles Kings, whether they're, they're potentially or have the potential to get back in that mix. Um, And and then I think moving forward, like there's gotta be some stealth team out there. You know, people have talked about Minnesota. They're not stealth at all. I just don't think that they have the ability to give Buffalo what they really want. And so I don't know. If you had to pick a stealth team for Jack Eichel, who would you think makes sense? That's a really good question. Like, 
I wonder if Minnesota, because of the, do you think they would part with Fiala? Would that be a, a starting point just because of the contract? Because they can't, I don't, when the, all the dead cap space they got moving forward, I'm not sure they can afford Kaprizov and Fiala and Eichel. Maybe I'm wrong on that. No, I, I think you're right on that. But I think the thing is, Buffalo doesn't want roster players. Right. Well, you're going to have to take some. You're giving up 10 million in cap space. I don't think anyone can take Jack Eichel without giving some cap space up. There's a few teams that could. Los Angeles could, for instance. Yeah, maybe. But I, I think either they, they'd want some salary going back, I think, at some point. And if you're trading Jack Eichel, man, that's like you're basically committing to a complete full on rebuild. Then you might as well trade Reese and You might as well trade Reinhardt as well. Because if you're taking Eichel for only prospects and picks, man, that's a. That's a three, four year kick the can down the road strategy. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and I, that's what I think everyone, you know, I wonder about the Islanders. Like, do the Islanders make any sense for Jack Eichel? Lou's got cap space for the first time in a while. Yeah. That would kind of seem to go against everything he's always done. But yeah, he, obviously he keeps things pretty close uh, to the vest. Uh, you know, if I'm going to say a stealth team that might shock a lot of people, I'm going to say um, the Colorado Avalanche. What about Boston? Well, they just signed. They're gonna they sign Hall. It's six per. Hmm. Well, they probably you know Buffalo. They'd have to be some contracts going back there for sure because Boston just couldn't mm-hmm. afford them if there's not money going out. Hmm. Yeah, I. It's but it's I, really. Hey, I get it, and I'm sure Jack Eichel would probably love to play there, right? The whole Boston College connection. I totally get it. So. And my antenna is up, by the way, about the Philadelphia Flyers. Um, you don't make a trade like that with Shane Gostaspair moving your second and your seventh just to dump his salary unless yes, you yes, have something. And I wouldn't be surprised at all to see them make some type of move on defense. Now, I think one name that's been out there is David Savard trading for his rights. And if you think about the salary structure, he's probably kind of in that, you know, same sort of Shane Gostas bear four and a half million range. The key with David Savard, I think is going to be term because I think that guy has some wear and tear on those tires. Yeah. Uh But I think, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say on David Savard, Frank, Watching the playoffs now. Granted, Tampa's a great team, but compared to those other defense, his mobility really or lack of it kind of stood out to me. And I, I just he he to me looks like a player who you know experience does everything well, but there the uh, the tread could wear off pretty quickly on those tires. I, I mean, I've talked to some other teams about Savard, and they say we'd go no longer than two years, which I think makes a lot of sense. I think he was exposed in, in a bit in Tampa. Um, he also couldn't really get comfortable. He played on yeah, that's three fair. different pairs and it took a while. So uh, the other name that I've heard with the flyers and I, I think it's really interesting because I don't, I can't get a real grasp on what they're doing. Josh Manson from the Anaheim ducks. Yeah. I think he, you know, the flyers and Chuck Fletcher actually made it clear in his press conference today after Shane Gosses bear that they're really looking for a right shot defenseman. I think Manson is a pretty prime target for exactly what they're going after. The thing is, oh, well, I, they I better be giving up a lot to get him. 
throw and you know another team that would like to get him is the Edmonton Orders because uh, with Adam Larson leaving, uh, there's a huge hole on the right side. I know they're having conversations, of course, with Tyson Berry. Very different style of fence. And like if you add Tyson Berry and you've got Bouchard and you've got Bear, it just I'm not sure that's a successful long term makeup. Uh, all three are NHL players, but they're all similar in their styles, and I just think it's almost too much of the same thing. Um, you know, Edmonton, I understand why they would re-sign Tyson Barry. You can't lose Barry and Larson. That's two of your top four defensemen in one offseason. It's pretty difficult to want to, uh, you know, look like you're moving forward per se. And, and they're high on Evan Bouchard. I think Evan Bouchard is going to come in this season and and he's going to be an everyday player for Edmonton. And I, and I think he's actually going to be quite good. Um, you know, he's a very smart player, very calm poised with the puck and I think he actually learned a lot just by being around I know he didn't get to play as much but he learned more I think from that than he would have uh, you know playing 15 to 18 games in the American League had they sent him down so he's an interesting player to me to watch Frank and I wonder if Tyson Berry is signed then uh, I could see in the future a trade involving uh, Ethan Bear that's uh, that was actually the next question I was going to ask you do you, does Ethan is he in there for the long haul if if you do resign Barry? It becomes a question because I just you know, and I think Ethan Bear will, will have some value. So like just because you trade, some people sometimes think that trading a player means that he's not good. There's lots of really good players that have been traded for, and it's, so it's about fit and situations. And I know Oiler fans, many of them would be livid if they if they resign Barry over Bear. But here's the thing: Tyson Barry is an infinitely better offensive player than Ethan Bear. Now Ethan Bear, I think is. Is it better defensively? I'm not sure that he's drastically better. Like Barry's drastically better offensively. Just look at his production over the last eight seasons. But with Evan Bouchard coming, you know, Evan Bouchard's a guy who's going to need puck touches. He's going to need to be in the offensive zone. He's going to need, I think, to be on the power play. So I'm kind of fascinated to see if they sign Barry, where, you know, how do they juggle him and Bouchard because they want to get the youngsters some looks and you got to get puck touches. Offensive players need puck touches on the power play. It allows them to be better a lot of times five on five. Well, the Oilers can have some real cap space flexibility, even with the guy like, um, like Zach Hyman in the fold at the numbers that have been reported. You know, if you decide to move on from Zach Cassian and if you buy out James Neal, which we expect to be coming, and if, you know, you want to go down the path and buy out Miko Koskinen and just have, you know, Staylock and Smith playing a cheap tandem. Even with Koskinen's money on the buyout, they're still only at four point two million for the three of those goalies. So um, they can get creative. They could even go out and get another goalie if they wanted to at that point, and they had the flexibility. But you know, to think of you know the possibilities that Ken Holland can still play with here is really interesting. And you know, just going back to Bear for a second. I just wish we could all kind of get a glimpse of what he would be like, you know, if he was really in shape and had, you know, came to camp ready to play. Yeah. It's, that, that was a, you know, it cost him a healthy scratch last year and, you know, young players that'll happen and, and hopefully he's learned from it and he'll be better. As for the buyouts, there's only going to be one, uh, you know, Ken Holland uh, confirmed to me when I asked him about that today, uh, it'll be one buyout, you know, probably one. And it would seem more likely that it's James Neal, um, although I, now I'm, I'm a big anti buyout guy. I, I don't like dead cap space. Uh, Tampa is the only team that's ever won the cup with dead cap space when they had Matt Carl at, at 1.8 million back in 2020. Other than that cup winning teams don't have dead cap space. And I know that the cap's supposedly supposed to go up, but 
I wouldn't like it if uh, if I was an order fan, but uh, they're in they're in win now. They're in be competitive for four years window, and that's why Zach Hyman. It's going to be our seven or eight year deal, Frank. Hopefully for them, so they can lower the cap uh, hit. Now I'm curious about that because you know if you go to eight years, that means you have to. It's a sign and trade with Toronto. Toronto signs them, then they trade them, and there's going to be some sort of compensation. I'm not sure how high that compensation will be, knowing that if Edmonton waits till next Wednesday, we just sign Zach Hyman for seven years. Sixth round pick. Like what is that? I just, yeah, I don't know that it makes sense to first trade an asset and then second go the eight years. Like what does that contract look like in the seventh and eighth year anyway? Well, well they're only doing that to like Nugent Hopkins to lower the AAV to five. Right. Million. But it's not that, you know, to go from five and a half to a shade over five, like the 400 grand, is it worth really going an extra year? What does that look like on the eighth year? Totally fair, man. Totally fair. I get it. And uh, that's why, you know, uh, trust me, uh, Oilers fans are, are a little, uh, a little concerned about the, I, uh, the future long-term. I know, you know, and I get it, but I thought it was really interesting. Our friend, Craig Button, uh, he was, you know, sort of sizing up what the Oilers would be getting with Zach Hyman. He said, if he plays with Connor McDavid, McDavid could have 150 points. And I was thinking like, wow, 150 points. But then I was like, yeah, it is McDavid, so it's not really that shocking. But No, he was on know. pace for more than that this year. <laughs> yeah, so, but still, the fact, you know, he obviously didn't get there. But, you know, the fact that Zach Hyman does a lot of the things that the Oilers stylistically really need, it's not just the goals. Obviously, he has a finishing capability, but it's, it's the, to do the dirty work to get the puck to those guys that I think, you know, the Oilers have also been missing at the same time. Yeah, no, that's fair. It's uh, it's very fair. Let's get to our uh, big guest delivered by DoorDash. Uh, proud to welcome DoorDash to the uh, the DFO rundown. Of course, a big sponsor across the uh, the nation network, and uh, they will deliver right to your door all some of your favorite restaurants that you can have delivered, comfort of your own home. It's convenient. And if you've never used the app, it's your first time, you can use the promo code Rundown. D D and that will get you a 25% off and free delivery. So it's a great deal. Once again, and run down DD delivered by DoorDash. All right, let's get to our uh, DoorDash big guest. As we are joined by from hockeyprospect.com. Brad Allen, he's the international crossover scout. He's also the goalie scout for hockeyprospect.com. He's been a scout for 10 years. And uh, Brad, welcome to the uh, DFO Rundown. Appreciate your time. How you doing? Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate uh, getting an opportunity to come here and talk about the draft. Well, hey, this, this draft today is unheralded. We've never seen anything like this. Uh, you've been scouting for 10 years. I've talked to a lot of scouts and, you know, they admit there's lots of uncertainty more than there ever has been before, just because there was so limited in actual, you know, eye views, you know, they they watched on video, but you just didn't get to see a lot of players in person. How much of a challenge was it for you? What did you find as a, as a 10 year scout that made you maybe question yourself or frustrated you the most with the process this year of not being able to see so many of the kids live? Well, being an international crossover scout uh, for, for a company that doesn't have the same budget as say an NHL team, uh, part of my job is to look at uh, some 
obscure prospects that are in difficult hockey markets to see unless you're willing to spend a lot of money to travel to places such as, say, Latvia or Germany or the Czech Republic. And, you know, it's basically all over Europe and around the, around the globe. So from that perspective, I already had some um, video scouting experience. Uh, that said, despite my experience, uh, I can say right now that it doesn't matter how much experience I can get, it will never be to live viewing. Right? And that's one of the biggest issues with this entire draft class. And the reason I say it will never be to live viewing is because depending on the video uh, angle uh, with the camera relative to the ice surface, uh, you're going to have a, a much more difficult time assessing skating mechanics within players. Uh, you're going to have a more difficult time uh, looking at speed differential I mean, how fast, slow a player can move from A to B, depending on the video quality because of the frame rate, right? It can get choppy, it can get delayed, it can get laggy. Uh, if it's too close to the ice surface, it's just hard to see separation relative to the opposing players that you're looking at. So there's a lot that goes into it from a speed uh, perspective. And of course, as you guys know, uh, speed kills. Speed's remarkably important in the NHL. And so just, just to having the, the skating aspect um, being limited in terms of being able to scout it correctly through video is, is severely limiting in terms of just being able to create an overall evaluation and ranking properly. The other aspects that go into this are they, the almost uh, more psychological aspects. For instance, when you're in a rink, you can get that, the, the rhythm, the tempo, the flow of a game and see how that prospect uh, reacts to that flow. How much of it is in a fact, of being able to create a momentum swing in the given context of each game, right? And that's taken out when you're watching on video as well. So you're, you're losing what they look like in terms of their mannerisms at the bench. You're losing their energy. You're losing their skating mechanics. And if you're looking at it from uh, uh, odd angles, if you're looking at a defensive prospect, you might lose them entirely in the play. You can't see them positionally because they might be outside of the camera range. And so all these factors have to be taken into consideration when you're looking at video scouting. So because that was such a big part of it this year, are our teams, do you think they're going to shy away from players that they haven't seen live or will they have enough confidence in their video scouting to draft them? I think a hundred percent we'll see, we'll see teams shy away uh, from players they haven't seen live. And it really does come back to what I just said about the skating specifically and the positional uh, awareness of defensemen. Uh, you know, th this is this is a class that's actually known to have more defensive depth than 2020's class, uh, which is actually arguably the only area that it was superior uh, superior in. Um, but I, I think because of that, uh, you're going to see a lot of teams say, hey, let's focus on even some OHLers that we saw a lot last season. Think like a Wyatt Johnson coming out of the Windsor Spitfires, for instance. He's a player who I liked a lot last season, but he only played at the U18s this year. So I think a lot of teams will say, hey, we saw him live in Windsor. We know what he's capable of developing into. Just because we got one live tournament doesn't mean we don't have a big enough sample. So I could see a player like him going a lot higher than a player who might actually have more talent than him, who was in a more obscure league, such as the MHL, which is the Russian Junior League, uh, where they didn't get as many eyes on them. So I think you're going to see a lot of that this year. And uh, I think it's going to be, I, out of any draft, I think it's pretty obvious. It's going to be the most unpredictable draft. Brad, taking a second to look through your NHL draft black book here from hockeyprospect.com, really valuable resource. You guys have 18 players with an A grade. You mentioned the depth of this draft. How does that stack up to the previous years? How deep, in your opinion, is this draft? You know what, Frank? I think a lot of people are saying 
uh, the same narrative, which is this is the worst class in a decade or it's right there with 2012 as being the worst class. I, I would disagree with that, honestly. I don't think it's as bad as 2012. However, if you were to compare it to uh, classes, say, from 2016 to 2020, is it as good as those classes? No, it's not. However, if you're a team that's sitting in the top 15, I think you're actually going to end up with a pretty good player. It's just one of the biggest differences between this class and a lot of other classes are one is it's a bad skating class. And now that, and that's even more compounded by what I said earlier about seeing everything on video. So you, that's that's one aspect that needs to be taken into consideration. The other is that you got to take in a lot more variables with each player this year, even if they're highly highly rated. So, for instance, when you're looking at prospects like Brant Clark, like Luke Hughes, like Simon Evanson, okay, those types of players have a lot of potential. They have high ceilings, but they also have a lot of red flags. And so because of that, uh, you know, it's one of those situations where on paper you could say, yes, theoretically, if things go really right in their development, they can end up being star caliber players, but they're longer away from a lot of other players that are usually in that 10 to 15, or I should say one to 15 range uh, relative to other seasons. Well, the, the headlines have been dominated, obviously people talking about Owen power and you mentioned Luke Hughes and, and all the other guys in that mix in the top five and sort of how closely bunched they are. Like I'm fascinated to see where Matty Beniers goes for instance, but I want to take a, a, a deeper dive and ask you about the, the most fascinating name for me on the list is Chaz Lucius. 48 goals in 51 games played like that. He does the hardest thing that there is to do in the league in the game where, you know, in looking at Bob McKenzie's rankings, which aren't scouting rankings at all. They're actually just an average of all, you know, 10 different scouts that he talks to. I think he has Lucius right at 10. You have him at 16. Where does he go and what's his upside? Your guess is as good as mine in terms of where he goes. It really depends on the the comfort a team will have with the the red flags. Again, so you're right when you say, you know, you look at his goal rates and that's the hardest thing there is to do. And it's what you're always looking for on the draft floors. You can find those 25, 30 goal projected goal scores. You're going to draft them high, right? There's a couple issues with Chaz Luchas. One of the main issues is that he, as of now, is a center, but we think he's projected to be a winger, right? So that decreases his value. Uh, to a degree. The other aspect is that if you took his skating base and you look at it in terms of where he could be developmentally, we think it falls pretty flat. Uh, sometimes in skating bases, you can correct certain mechanics within them. In Chaz Lucius's case, I don't think they're very correctable. You're looking at more how much fast twitch, how much peak power output can you develop in him over a four to five year period when you're looking at the strength and conditioning side of the equation. Now, in, in Chaz's case, he does have some tools that help him minimize uh, the risk associated with the skating. So for instance, if you can't skate very well, you have to be very smart, right? You have to have, you have to have hockey sense in order to uh, be able to compensate. You also have to have a high, high skill level. So he has those attributes. He's very deceptive. He has good spatial awareness. Uh, he's very good at recognizing his timing. He's good at uh, getting into uh, soft ice areas and being able to track rebounds correctly. He's very good at recognizing seam, seams on a goaltender when something's opened up, hence why he's got so many goals, right? So there's, there's aspects to him that are extremely uh, impressive. But when you look at the game, the game right now, the modern NHL is built for transition, he is not going to be a player that's going to be very good in transition. He is not going to be a line driver at the NHL level. When we put our rankings together, we always try to get the line drivers in that top 10 to 15 range, always. So that's why Chaz Lucius falls directly out of that range, because to us, he's a very complimentary winger who can definitely score you 30 goals, 
but he's not the driver of play and he's not a possession driver for the neutral zone. And, and Bridget, before you jump in, you know, the one thing just kind of more so commentary, not even necessarily a question, because I'm not knocking, you know, exactly what you just said or your rankings at all. One of the things that drives me nuts about scouting in general is scouts always kind of point out, and this is again, not directed at you, all these things that a guy can't do or, or isn't very good at, or the red flags that exist. And I, I just think to Cole Caulfield going in that sort of same range, you know, so recently when you have such a unique ability to find the back of the net, it's like you find ways to knock these guys down like a Cole, a Cole Caulfield, totally different player than Lucius, for instance, but he scores. And it was like, well, the knock was his size. He's going to get pushed around. He's not going to be able to make it. And it's like, then you see a guy like him have an impact that he's had. And it's like, well, that's exactly what we said would happen given the way that he scored when he was in his draft year. Yeah, it's, it's a good it's a good point. You know, it, one thing that's funny about uh, a scout's job is like some some scouts are pretty grumpy, right? Just by nature, and and but they're good scouts. And the reason that they're good scouts is because if you if you inflate a prospect in your head, you're going to over evaluate them in a positive way and then overdraft them, and that burns you. And that's why some scouts pull back and basically force a prospect to come to them. Right. And that's what that's what you see when it comes to the Cole Caulfields and the Chaz Lucius's and a lot of other prospects is it's like, okay, you're very talented, but there's things here that are definitely warning signs. And because of that, people draw back a little bit. Now, in the case of Cole Caulfield, uh, I think that one thing that actually kind of hurt him is that he was with uh, uh, Hughes. Right. And uh, I think that Jack Jack Hughes um, and I think that actually affects him because a lot of people are going to say, well, what happens when he's not with with a player like that? What happens when he's not on the best program assembled over the last decade, which he was, right? Um, it also comes down to the fact that, uh, I'm going to give Cole Caulfield some credit here, he improved in some ways that are more difficult to improve in, uh, specifically with his playmaking. And now it, it, you could make an argument, hey, if you're a world-class sniper, the last thing I want you to do is pass the puck. And that's true uh, to a degree. But the, what, what uh, is helping Cole Caulfield here was when he developed his playmaking in college and brought it to the NHL, it allows him to reopen himself after uh, uh, giving somebody uh, the puck and then being able to reopen up his hips and receive a pass in his wheelhouse. So it, it gave him more options in terms of how he sets up his give and go sequences, how he works in transition, right? It, it gave him more than what we thought was there when we initially looked at him. Uh, now, again, one thing too, I'll say about Cole Caulfield and Chaz Lucius, when they're scoring, they're extremely useful players. What happens when they're not? And in the case of Cole Caulfield, that was the real deciding factor in terms of what can he bring to a playoff series when he is cold, right? He's five, he's five six, five seven. He he's a decent, pretty good skater. He works decently hard, but there's only so much you can do with that type of frame when you're off your game. A good example of this is when he was at the U20s. So with the U20 performance, he was he was struggling. He was mentally not where he needed to be in terms of his goal scoring rate, and we saw a player get largely shut down. And a player like Matt Boldy, who doesn't have the same goal scoring upside, be a much more prominent player because he had so many other options and tools to use. Yeah, there's lots that goes into scouting, and what I like about Hockey Prospect and your black book that people should highly recommend it is you really break down your rating system, and we'll put it up on the screen. You know, you guys break it down: hockey sense and compete and skill and skating. But then you go into it, uh, you know, with playmaking, vision, deception. You know, first on pucks for compete. You know, their shot accuracy, etc. It's, it's all up there, and it's rated on a on a three to nine scale. So, in order to to be an A player, and Frank alluded to, there's eighteen 
of them this year. And I think there's 27 B players and then you get to C plus out of those rankings. Like what does an A player need to get across the board in hockey sense, compete skill skating and miscellaneous to be an A player at hockey prospect? It really is contextually based off the player, which I'll, I'll get into a bit, but just the general sense of it, they obviously have to be good in basically everything or very well-rounded. And we prefer seeing a unique quality, something that's almost a specialization within that player that makes them excellent or exceptional relative to the crop in some area. So for instance, if you broke down William Eklund, who we have in our top three, uh, it, when you look at his skill level, okay, he's one of the most talented players in this draft. He is an elite playmaker, elite vision, elite processing ability and anticipation and spatial awareness and how all that melts together to create some of the most dynamic plays there are. Right. So when you, when you factor in his ceiling and then you look at his floor and you say, okay, what is he off the puck? Well, he's very good at anticipating play. He stays above the puck. He's very good at supporting along the boards or learn at least learning that process. He's there willingly to learn it. And that's what you look for at this, at this age. It's, it, they don't have to be perfect, but you have to see that they have the instincts, the natural instincts and the natural tendencies to want to do it. Right. It, it, it's just work rate is an incredibly important po- uh, component of this for us. If you're a rated specifically with us, it means that there is a very, very good chance that you keep a tremendous work rate, a tremendous pace. OK, and th- that's just because of the nature of the, the way the game is going right now. If you look at the speed of the game, it's only getting faster. Right. And what that means is that you're going to have to have prospects keep up with that pace, that speed. And therefore, we always look for that tremendously competitive player with an edge. Now, we do give exceptions. One is Chaz Lucius. Would we say he's a tremendously competitive player? No, but he's above average. And then the goal scoring upside, then, right, it allows him to uh, get in that, that top 20 range and still be rated because of what it brings. But yeah, there's some give and take, but yeah, we definitely prefer seeing an exceptional quality. And it's all about that balance between the floor and ceiling ratio. You want to see, you want to see a strong floor. One thing that uh, Mark Edwards, our director of scouting, always emphasizes is that we are not here to just do some sort of fantasy ranking or do some sort of mock draft. That's not our job. Our job is to pretend that we are the 33rd team. Now, it's weird saying that, but yeah, 33rd team and uh, be able to go on this draft floor and saying, this is actually your pick. And if it doesn't work out, you have to sit down with your girlfriend or your wife or your husband and you have to say, hey, we're moving. We messed up and we're moving. And that, that really changes perspective when it comes to evaluating the floor of a player and the projection of a player. I'll give you a perfect example of one. Winnipeg Jets drafted Cole Perfetti at 10th. I personally would have taken Cole Perfetti higher than that, but I definitely would have had some beads of sweat hitting my pillow for sure in the middle of the night, knowing that there is some risk here, right? He has a tremendous ceiling, but he's also not athletically very gifted, a bit smaller, uh, not physically nearly as developed as some other kids. And that makes you second, you know, really have to give yourself a second evaluation, make sure to say, would I actually do this? And that's a real fundamental difference between us and some other uh, people that do this uh, publicly. Uh, because we we consider we're professionals that really do consider this uh, a full time job, and uh, the vast majority of us are trying to be in the in the NHL, and so to simulate that, I think gives us an edge, and, and it really helps us with our evaluations. Now, Brad, uh, you're also the goalie scout for HockeyProspect.com, and you mentioned the 2012 draft. And funny enough, the best player from the 2012 draft now is is Andre Vasilevsky, who went 19th overall uh, this year. There's two goalies ranked. Uh, you know, depends on where you have them. Uh, you guys have a uh, 
uh, from the Edmonton Oil Kings, Sebastian Kosa, who is uh, number seven on your list. And then, of course, you have uh, Jesper Wallstad, who is 15th. This is You're the goalie guy. I love having a goalie guy on because it's the position I, I understand the least, to be honest. Like, I, I watch it, I get it, but there's so many little things that are just nuanced. So let's let's break down the two. How close are they to begin with? And then give me your strengths and what you like about both of them and maybe how they're different. Well, I'll start off by saying, I don't know how Mark Edwards managed to convince me to become a goalie guy for him. It's, it's a heck of a responsibility and really, really tough to do. Um, yeah, you know what? Goaltending scouting is, is incredibly difficult. It really is. One of the biggest problems with goaltending scouting is if you look at it from, uh, say, if I'm scouting Willie Mecklin to Brent Clark, and then I have to scout Sebastian Coast and Jesper Wolstead, it takes me twice as long. It's, it's a lot more in-depth process. Um, but to get back to your question, I think they're both A-rated. Uh, I think they're both tremendous goaltenders. And I think uh, that they have the, the potential to be franchise-altering goalies uh, for the respective teams that draft them. Now, uh, I am in the minority, at least publicly, when it comes to which goalie I prefer. And I prefer Sebastian Kosa. Uh, and the reason why uh, comes down to how the modern system in the NHL works when it comes to goal rates. If you look at the modern game, you're seeing a lot of chaotic broken play types lead to goals, right? So you're, you're dealing with pucks going off shin pads, pucks getting deflected and redirected off sticks. You're dealing with low to high danger lateral passes, okay, that are, that are going through screens. Uh, you're, dealing, you're dealing with a tremendous snipers who are come down the wing like on Austin Matthews who can mask the shooting side that they're going uh, going across uh, the grain on when they're when they're trying to mask the mask their shot through a screen for instance it's it's all either elite sniping or those are the types of goals that are going in uh, in terms of the chaos plays so if you take those into consideration and you look at uh, goalies like Igor Shosturkin, Elvis Merzlikens, UC Saros, Andre Vasilevsky, the list goes on. All these goalies have one thing in common, and that's they have the athletic ability necessary uh, to recover in the time frame necessary to get to these broken types of plays. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now, Sebastian Kosa has a ceiling that is reminiscent of Yaroslav Askarov, who, for your listeners, was the the best goalie ranked in the 2020 draft. And for my money, uh, arguably the best goalie I've scouted since Andre, Vas- Andre Vasilevsky and Igor Shostorkin. So, you know, when you, when you look at these types of goalies, the modern day goalie is all about lateral explosiveness and these micro adjustments. It's, it's a term that I use to refer to when a goalie misassesses the initial play type and then has to reposition themselves and square up on the second and third play types. So with the Esper Wallstead, you're looking at almost a quote-unquote throwback element to him, meaning he's a blocking-style netminder who's as wide as he is tall. He's a gigantic fridge in net, okay? He's a big, big kid who uh, plays a, a blocking style where he's absorbing the initial shot. And because of that, I have to weight his attributes differently than Kosa's because Kosa doesn't need the same level of puck tracking and situational awareness and reads as Wallstedt does because he can recover at a higher rate. So when I look at Jesper Wallstedt, I say, okay, he has to be elite at puck tracking, elite at situational reads, or I can't have him in this tier range. But luckily for Jesper Wallstedt, that's exactly what makes him special. He is one of the best we've ever uh, monitored at tracking pucks. Uh, one way I always tell people um, that I monitor uh, puck tracking with goalies is that 
when he's looking to uh, make a save through a screen, he's very, very good at knowing if he should actually fall into his um, into his butterfly or if he should stay uh, in a in a set position in a set stance. And it's remarkable how consistent he is, even at the SHL level as an eighteen year old at doing this. And so when when you take that into consideration and you see his development curve over the last three years, I think he's at the point now where his lateral lateral explosiveness is at least average. His athletic Racism is at least average enough where I'm not worried about it. Uh, that said, again, I still take Kosa because even though he doesn't read the play as well as Wall State, he still reads the play exceptionally well in his own right. He's just it's not a lead. It's just excellent. And then when you look at the 6-6 six, six frame and then packed in with the, with the with the tools, it just I think the ceiling is just that high. Brad, I'm really looking forward to seeing how the goalies play out. I wanted to ask you just to dive in a little bit more on the idea between the ceiling and the floor for a player, because I look at a guy like Cole Sillinger at number five as, you know, everything that you, you know, you might as well just stamp safe on his forehead. Is that the best way to describe him? Is he the safest pick in this draft? <laughs> maybe, maybe you should listen to him and, and draw it on his uh, forehead for, for when he gets selected, because it's true. Uh, he's, you know, when you're looking at floors, it's always about the competitiveness and the structure of the player, right? And if Cole Sillinger's not scoring, we just talked about how Cole Caulfield, kind of his game gets minimized, right? When Cole Sillinger isn't scoring, he is still creating havoc. Think Brady Kachuk right? Matthew Kachuk, Brady Kachuk type of player in terms of his instincts for the game. He's an agitator. He's somebody who will run through a guy. Uh, it, it's one of those situations where he'll be very physical and he'll impose his will uh, when it comes to the four check. He'll, he'll impose himself on a team that makes their life uncomfortable. And you got to remember when, when we're doing this and we're trying to create um, – uh, our own ranking and our own team, uh, our own system in terms of what we would build as a playoff contender. You're always looking for players who can make defensemen's life miserable, right? Because it's all about making sure that you can decrease defensemen's puck retrieval rates. In order to do that, you find players like a Cole Sillinger who creates a physical edge who can who can impose himself on a defenseman you, you know one thing i always say to everybody uh, on my radio show and in podcasts is if you look at um if you look at successful teams like tampa bay right steve eisenman largely built that back end what's the main thing that you see within it it's massive it has range it's very hard to play against right and the reason i think that steve eisenman built it in the way he did is because he built a defense that could theoretically shut him down I think that's what he, 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 he went out to do. So to counteract that, you have to go find these tenacious power forward style of players uh, like Cole Sillinger and like, like a Tom Wilson or a Josh Anderson or a Boone Jenner, right? These players are extremely important even when they're not putting up points. Now, the reason we have Cole Sillinger still in our top five is because we think just like Chaz Lucius, he's one of the only projectable 25 to 30 goal scorers available in this class. Interesting. Last question for me, Brad, is Logan Mayu at number 30. We've reported extensively on dailyfaceoff.com about his story being charged with the crime for taking and distributing an inappropriate photograph in Sweden following a consensual sexual encounter. We know the update to the story that Logan Mayu has renounced himself from this draft. My question is two-part. One, when you decided to rank Logan Mayu at number 30, did you know, not going to ask if you knew about the situation, but was he ranked there based solely on his talent and playing ability? And the second part is, given that he is ranked at number 30, and even though you don't opt in or opt out of the draft, he's made this request. My understanding is that 
there are a number of NHL teams still considering selecting Logan Mayu in this weekend's draft. Could you see a, a situation that unfolds where he actually is selected, even though he's asked teams not to? Well, to answer the first part of your question, um, we basically, for every single player, rank on ice only. And the reason why is because if you took, uh, you know, I look at 270 kids per year. And if I, if I had to do, go on ice to off ice, on ice to off ice, it creates just a tremendous amount of convoluted rankings. And it's just, there's not enough time, not enough communication, not enough. Uh, yeah. Just not, not, there's not enough time to go through that process. Okay. So for, to make our, our, you know, to make a ranking fair and to make it consistent, we wanted to make sure we said as a staff, Hey, let's rank on ice only. And we'll let uh, the powers that be determine what, what uh, happens with each kid that makes mistakes off the ice, essentially. In terms of your second question, uh, I definitely could see a team still drafting him, um, depending on uh, how the interview process goes with Logan Mayu. You know, as you know, I, I, you, I know that you've been in the industry for a long time, Frank and, and Jason. So it's one of those situations where if a team feels comfortable with where he is mentally and in terms of his, uh, in terms of getting back on track in the future, could they end up taking him later in the draft and living with the repercussions uh, from that, yeah, I think that's a possibility, but I, I'm not. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't bet it. Uh, bet either way. It's. It will be interesting to see uh, the ramifications for this after the Mitch Miller situation, for sure. Uh, Brad, I got a few more for you. Kind of, kind of go quick fire a little bit, just because a lot of the names at the top. Owen Power. He's already committed. He's going back uh, to school next year. So, do you first see any player from this draft playing in the upcoming NHL season? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, if, if Owen Power decided not to go back to college, I would absolutely say it would be Owen Power. Based off his world championship performance, and even before then, he looked like for sure he was ready for the NHL. Um, another player that I would say is NHL ready, but I don't know if he'll actually come back over uh, to do. I think he actually just signed a contract to stay over in Sweden, which would be Willie Meckland. I think Willie Meckland yeah. is ready to play in the NHL, um, but I think it's smarter for him to not play in the NHL next year. I actually think it's a bad idea for most players yes. to play in. Like, honestly, if, if Alexei Lafreniere, you know, if, if I saw what I saw in the first couple of weeks, I, I get it. I understand that it looks a certain way if you decide to put him in the AHL. Um, but it, it's one of those circumstances where, uh, you know, it, it's never a good idea to rush a prospect, right? We've seen it time and time again. Yeah. So from that perspective, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think besides Owen Power and William Eklund, it, it really depends on Matt Benier's off season. If Benier's can get that much stronger, then he has a chance uh, to start off. I'd say the wing, like you, ne you never want to rush a center, uh, especially in their rookie season. Um, but yeah, it, with the exception of those three, I really don't think there's another player that has a chance to play next season. Okay, we'll get to a little bit of rapid fire. It's going to be a little bit more extended today just because I'm kind of going to go off the top 10 or 12 picks. Um, what do you like most about Simon Edvinson? A skating package. He's 6'5", and he's one of the best skaters in the entire draft. And we project, say he doesn't hit his ceiling, which is pretty high. He has really good set of hands. Uh, he sees the ice well. Uh, he had actually some of the most dynamic plays, uh, but they were just very inconsistent. 
which is really the it's that's really the debate with Simon Evanson is what exactly is he? Is he a two way forward? Is he a more of a shutdown defenseman than NHL level, a modern day one that can you know make an outlet pass and really move the puck in transition? Uh, it, it does he is it one of those situations where he can't even be that and he's a puck mover? It, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of debate about what Simon Evanson is. Um, but in terms of where I see him, I think he's going to be a dominant, minute-eating, two-way defenseman who can put up between 25 and 35 points for a team and uh, can shut down teams' top lines because he's one of the best projectable defensemen off, uh, in terms of transitional rush defense. Uh, he can really absorb a rush, and he can really uh, turn a play back around in the neutral zone and get, get the puck moving in the right direction. Uh, we're big fans of Edmondson, despite, despite him being admittedly a wild card, admittedly somewhat risky. You mentioned uh, Beneers out of Michigan. Of course, there's uh, you know three guys from Michigan uh, potentially to go in the top ten for sure. Um, who does who does he remind you of for for fans who haven't seen him? If you were projecting him in five years, who would he look like currently? He looks something like Dylan Larkin. I think Dylan Larkin would probably be the best comparable for me. Um, I know I'm not the only one with that comparable. That, that's what I saw when I first saw him. I, I think he's a very good second line center. I would be surprised surprised if he's a first line center based off his skill level he's not not the most dynamic player uh he's not he's not a player who projects to score i'd say more than 20 goals in a given season okay but he it's it's how well-rounded he is and it's how uh mentally structured he is within his center foundation that makes him a pretty pretty unique prospect i think one of the best ways to characterize mapineers is that he's more than the sum of his parts mason mctavish what do you like best about him and what could he bring to any NHL team? Mason McTavish has one of the best development curves in this season. And what I mean by that is if you take a player like Zade Wisdom, okay, uh, drafted last year, fourth round by Philly, uh, was a Kingston Frontenac. Uh, he, he was somebody where if you told me he was even a draft in his minus one season, I tell you there's no way. And then you see him, what he transformed into in the second half, uh, he, we put him in our top 35. Right. And when I'm, and that's the development curve of the player. He went from a no draft to us and his minus one to a top 35 player. That is a skyrocketing projection. Tim Stutzler did something similar where we thought he'd be top 15. Never in a million years do we think he'd be potentially better than Lafreniere by the end of the season. And we had him in the same tier range. We had Lafreniere and Stutzler literally tied in a tier one range together. And it's all about that curve. When you're looking at as a scout, you're always looking at development curves. And that's what we love about Mason McTavish. Mason McTavish has a tremendous curve where he really improved his speed. He improved his playmaking. He learned uh, what he needed to be in, in terms of uh, creating efficient offense. And so that he's more than just a shooter, which he was primarily uh, when he was playing the OHL last season, or I'm sorry, the, the pr- previous season before the season. Uh, but yeah, the, when, when he got his opportunity to play against men in Switzerland, he took off and he looked fantastic. Dylan Gunther from the Edmonton Oil Kings absolute rocket of a shot uh you know he had 24 points i know it's a small sample size and only 12 games we average two points a game uh, in your draft year you're going to get uh, noticed of course so then he scored four goals in seven games at the u18 what do you like best about gunther who's your remind you dylan gunther yeah I, i'm a huge fan of dylan gunther in terms of upside um in terms of who he reminds me of oh man off the top of my head i don't know if there's a of a player that i can think of that the kind he's kind of his own thing. One thing I, I always say is like when it comes to prospects, I, I usually don't like player comparables because I find it like devalues that the kid has an individual 
base of his own, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but in Gunther's case, like I really think that he projects to be a 60 to 65 point 30 goal scorer. And you can't say that a lot about a lot of kids in this draft. He's also somebody that don't be surprised if he goes higher. Don't be surprised if he goes top three or four. I wouldn't be shocked if a team says, Hey, he might be the best scorer in the draft. And if things go really right, he might end up the best player in this draft. There's a, there's a tremendous amount of potential with Dylan Gunther. The U18s might have hurt him. Despite the point totals you see, he did not have a very good U18 performance. Uh, so we'll, it, it's, it's interesting. You know, I think in a normal year, he would be probably top five. Uh, but in this season, maybe it, creep, it pulls him back. But again, if a team takes him top three, don't blink. I wouldn't be shocked. And Kent Johnson is, to me, one of the more intriguing players because, you know, people are like, hey, if he can put some weight on him, you know, he's pretty slender right now. And so is Gunther. And, and that's where I think part of the, the tough part about projections is just the strength. But, man, when you look at hockey sense and a lot of things, Kent Johnson, to me, might be the most interesting of the top 10 prospects. Yeah, we had him top two to start the season. And then there was a reason for that. And that's because he is absolutely one of the most dynamic and creative and, and experimental players on the ice. And I, I use the term experimental because it segues into the fact that he played in the BCHL um, heading into college. And I bring up the fact he played in the BCHL, which uh, for, for your listeners, is not, it's not the equivalent of the Q or the dub or the O by any stretch of the imagination. It's a weaker league and allows him to get away with some tendencies uh, that he's not going to be able to get away with in college and so it took him a bit longer to look like the player we were envisioning heading into the season okay um that said if you were to say talent wise where does he rank in this draft class and out of the forwards he's top three you know he's right there with william eckland um you know it's, it's he's remarkably creative he's a very good playmaker uh it, you know his hands are dynamic the the big thing with him is that we I, we don't think he's the goal scorer we first thought he did uh, we, we first thought he was, and that's 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 I'd say maybe what has limited him in terms of our ranking for him. And then the other aspect of this is: is he a winger or is he actually a center? There's a bit too much experimentation. There's something we call risk assessment. We always look for players who understand um, how to navigate risk within their position. Meaning, if he's in the defensive zone, we don't want to see him make a, a beautiful highlight reel, no look spinning pass when he doesn't need to. Right? We want him to be more efficient. Uh, you know, it's wonderful that he. He can do those things, but we want him to do those things in the right areas of the ice at the right time. And he's still in that development period where he's trying to learn that process. Now, if he can get there, then you can project him as a center. If he cannot get there, then you project him as a winger. And then again, that decreases his value slightly. And lastly, Luke Hughes and the Hughes brothers. If Luke Hughes is drafted in the top 10, they'll be the first ever in NHL history to have three brothers all drafted in the top 10. The Sutter's went fourth, 10th, and 11th, but they didn't get three in the top 10. The Stalls had uh, two number twos and a number 12, never three in the top 10. And uh, you know, Luca had a funny quote that caught people's attention when what's the difference between him and his brother? Quinn goes, well, I'm six foot two. So how do, how do you project him maybe just to his brothers? How different is he? And uh, what's he going to bring? Okay, so the thing with, the, with uh, Luke Hughes is, like his brothers, elite skating base. Right. That's the that's the first thing you look at. He's just one of the most gifted skaters in this draft uh, by a mile. The other aspect that's interesting about Luke Hughes is he's grown recently a lot. You know, when he was, you know, only two, three years ago, he's about five ten, five eleven. Now he skyrocketed up to six two. Now the question becomes, okay, with a six two frame that you're filling out, maybe there's more defense here than we first thought. Maybe he can actually become a much better defender than his brother Quinn. Right. And that that's where things get very interesting with his projection. Now, does he have the vision of his brother? Quinn Hughes. Does he have the playmaking ability? Is he as talented naturally? I don't think so. 
personally. Um, but that doesn't mean he's not a fantastic defenseman in his own right. He still has a lot of upside. He still has a tremendous transitional game in terms of projection. You know, he's somebody who can carry the puck through all three zones, but he can also make his make make passes too. It's just, unlike Quinn Hughes, uh, he doesn't have the same level of spa- spa- uh, spatial recognition. He can inadvertently skate himself uh, into bad areas of the ice. He also is prone to making uh passes or pass attempts that are not necessary or putting himself in positions he doesn't need to be put in. Uh, so he's more raw. There's a lot, there's a lot more projection with him relative to his brother at the same age. That said, do I think he goes in the top 10 just because of the skating base and the skill set alone? Yes, I do. So I think he will be the, I think the Hughes will be able to be proud and say they are the first uh, three brother unit to, to come in the league in the top 10 at the same time. Brad, uh, great in-depth analysis, man. We appreciate it. I highly recommend uh, anybody who's a, a draft junkie, you want to get the uh, uh, Hockey Prospect, go to hockeyprospect.com, get the black book. And the great part about it is it has like handwritten notes of uh, the scouts and what they think of players so you know that it's real. And then also it has a projection for next year. So you can get a jump on that, hockeyprospect.com, the black book. Uh, Brad, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on the DFO Rundown. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, guys. I had a lot of fun. It was great being here. That was Brad Allen delivered by DoorDash. And a real good insight, Frank. Uh, clearly, uh, you can tell a guy who's passionate about scouting has uh, done his homework. Yeah, so good. And what's awesome about the black book is not just all the info. Like, it's not just good to have this book before the draft today. It's also good to have it after the fact yes. to know who you picked, who your team picked, and learn a lot more about that guy and also maybe some other guys in your team's division that you want to know more about. And the thing is, this has got everybody because, you know, there's a lot of focus on the first rounders, but ultimately if you want to 400 and some players here. Yeah. Look at Tampa Bay. Look at how many of their picks came from the second, third, fourth rounds that were huge players. Kucherov, Point, Kalorn, Palat, like then undrafted guys too, like Johnson and, and, and Gord. So it definitely makes a, a big difference for sure. Uh, Frank, this will be a, an interesting weekend. Of course, the draft goes tonight uh, and tomorrow. And then uh, free agency begins on uh, Wednesday. So fun question before you let you leave. How many NHL players are traded today or tomorrow? I'm going to say six. Six. Ooh, I like that number. Okay. All right. There's always that. something that you're just not thinking of. Like I, I had a pretty good idea that things were off the rails with Alex Nadelkovich. I didn't think they were going to trade him. I thought eventually this would just, you know, maybe they go to Arb, they work itself out. Like that to me was a little bit of a surprise. Do you think Bernier signing in Carolina? That I don't know. I think they're going to try. But here's the thing: I can tell you that I, I know, I know what what Nadelkovich asked for. And I tweeted it three and a half million, which seemed yeah. really reasonable, but they were trying to pencil him in and trying to squeeze him to get around one seven five. That's a long way off. And obviously they weren't going to bridge the gap, but my, my guess is knowing kind of how Carolina operates is that they'd want to get Jonathan Bernier on one seven five. So if he's yeah. willing to do it, then I'd say it probably gets done. And if not, he's like, well, I'll just go to market. All right. Well, Franco, we will talk to you on Monday. Enjoy the draft. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. 
All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.